This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the May 21st, 1942 broadcast of NBC's News of the World. It includes updates on the war from Australia, London, Stockholm, and the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Good morning. Time for your news roundup from around the world. First... From the newsroom in San Francisco, we bring you a report of the activity in the Southwest Pacific by our correspondent with United Nations headquarters in Australia. Go ahead, Australia. This is Martin Agronsky, somewhere in Australia. Yesterday, Allied bombers turned their attention westward again to the Japarela naval bases of Kopang and Dili in the former Dutch and Portuguese island of Timor, some 500 miles northwest of Darwin. The Japs' activity was confined to an unsuccessful attempt by 12-0 fighters to strafe our aerodrome at Port Moresby in New Guinea. The renewal and regularity of our attacks on the Japs in Timor certainly indicates that the Jap threat to Australia may no longer be confined now to the Jap bases in New Britain and New Guinea off northeastern Australia. None of our communiques reveal the nature of the Jap forces, either to the east or the west, but the regularity with which the mention of Jap transports crops up indicates that in both directions the Jap forces might be of an invasion type. Despite the Japs' long delay in moving southward again since their first check at the Carl Sea battle, there is no tendency here to interpret this comparative lull as indicating a Jap change of mind about attacking Australia or her Pacific Island supply line to the United States. The statement by a Jap spokesman in Tokyo that, I quote, the war will hereafter be continental, unquote, is being taken with a considerable grain of salt here. The automatic deduction from this Jap statement would naturally be that the Japs intend to confine their war-making efforts in the immediate future to completing the conquest of China. The first ground on which this bold Jap statement would seem to be improbable is that the Japs are much too careful to broadcast to their enemies their strategic intentions. Then in wars and other things, actions still speak louder than words. The Jap forces aimed today in the direction of Australia, combined with the abortive invasion attempt in the Carl Sea, are an act of reality that no speculation can explain away. 
It is as true today as it has ever been. The Japs must have four main strategic objectives. One China, two India, three Russia, and four Australia on our corollary Pacific faces. If anybody guesses to which order, Japan plans to proceed toward these four objectives in the immediate future. Poison Burma between China and India, and with the initiative in their hands, the Japs can move toward either objective. From all reliable information, the Burmese campaign, as in fact is true of all the Jap campaigns since the initial attack on Singapore and Honolulu, has not cost the Japs heavily in either material or men. As far as resources are reckoned in war, the Japs are able to take the offensive against both the, Chi against both the Chinese and the Indians simultaneously. China would certainly seem to be the more attractive objective of the two for the simple reason that the Chinese are already seriously weakened, and the Japs might, erect, might reckon that that elusive will-o'-the-wisp, the complete destruction of Chinese force, is nearer to their grasp than ever before. But the political unrest in India, Britain's demonstrated weakness in the Burmese fighting at India's door, might all tend to tempt the Japs in that direction. Then there is Russia, Japan's enemy number one, almost since the day when the Japs emerged from their feudal seclusion into the political theater of the Western world. Certainly, if Russia shows signs of weakening as a result of the gigantic struggle now in progress on the Russo-German front, Japan might be induced to drop everything in the hope of bringing about the downfall of the country that the Japs, as well as Hitler, must realize that today the active pivot of anti-Axis fighting in this world war. All these objectives are certainly being weighed in the balance in Tokyo. But how can the Japs, careful and able strategists, as they've proved themselves to be, leave unmolested in their rear the one base from which the Allies could threaten their Pacific flank and rear? The one base from which the Allies could imitate the Japs' own stepping stone technique to start an offensive, which island step by island step could bring the Allied forces within striking distance of Japan itself. And that base, military thinkers here are convinced, is this country, the continent of Australia. This is Martin Nagrowski returning now to San Francisco. And now, across the continent, to our newsroom in New York. For another on-the-spot report, we turn now to London and to John McVeigh. This is London. The two-day war debate in Parliament doesn't seem to have proved much, except that there are some backbench conservatives who don't like Mr. Churchill. The movement to separate Mr. Churchill and war strategy started off with a bang a few weeks ago, but it petered off somewhat weakly yesterday. The left-wing socialist review of the Tribune referred to the movement scornfully a week or two ago as the Palace Revolt. Laborites have felt that Mr. Churchill paid too much attention to the conservatives and didn't attempt to work out the equation of human rights and property rights in the way labor thought necessary. But there hasn't been any real labor opposition expressed in this recent war debate. Churchill didn't need to come to the House to demonstrate the strength of his own position. A good many people feel that Mr. Churchill may have taken too active a part in determining strategy. But men like Sir Stafford Cripps and Mr. Attlee, who are in a position to know, say this isn't so. The determining political factor is that the psychological state of the country is far different now from what it was just after Singapore. The average man feels things are looking better. 
and he is willing to support the Churchill government, which he feels is aiming toward an offensive. Sir Stafford Cripps made what is thought to be the most specific promise of a continental invasion that the government has yet made. As long as the British people feel the government is working to fulfill that promise, Churchill can afford to brush off such critics as may arise. Information reaching Greek circles in London makes it apparent that Italian troops outside Italy are convinced that Mussolini picked the losing side when he joined Hitler. Italian soldiers in Greece have in the last few months become scrupulously polite to the Greek population. They're going out of their way to express their sympathy with the Greeks. The Italian troops are preparing for the time when they'll have to make the best of a very bad situation. Italian officers in Greece and as many of the men as can afford it have bought suits of civilian clothing. They keep the civilian dress in their kit for the day when appearing in Italian uniform in Greece will be conspicuously dangerous. The Germans in Greece are reported to treat the Italians with insolent contempt. The Greeks had a satirical song about Mussolini. It's become a favorite of the Germans, and German officers have forced Greek orchestras to play the song in restaurants whenever Italian officers are present. The other day I was talking with a South African of Dutch descent about the changes in England during the war. He said, one thing I notice is that now I can talk Afrikaans, the language of the Boers, and nobody minds. He said in contrast that at the beginning of the war, he and a friend had been talking Afrikaans in a railroad train. In the compartment was a typical blimp. In the midst of the conversation, he leaned over and said fiercely, here, you can't talk a foreign language here. The South African explained he was talking an official language of one of his majesty's dominions. The blimp began to threaten and talked about calling the police. Suddenly, a young English officer in uniform said to the blimp, Keep quiet, you. We're fighting this war to get rid of people like you. And here's another story in one day about language. The other day, a Scotch soldier came up before a British military examination board, and he was asked, Do you know any foreign language? The Scotsman replied, Yes, English. The examining officer said, What? You regard English as a foreign language? Yes, said the Highlander severely. I was brought up on the Latin and the Gaelic. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to New York. Go ahead, Stockholm. David Anderson is speaking. The Germans stopped all telephone calls between Stockholm and Berlin. This morning, telephone connections were once more resumed, but for how long, no one knows. I need hardly repeat that the Germans revert to this measure whenever something of big political or military import is in the offing, or when there's a piece of news which the Germans prefer to keep for internal consumption only. A week ago Saturday, when the telephone blockade was enforced, the generally accepted explanation here was that it had something to do with Goering's trip to France. But what the reason might be this time is as yet impossible to state definitely. However, well-informed circles suggest the possibility that the Germans are trying to veil the real beginnings of their so-called spring offensive. One of the best ways to do this, they state, would be to impose a few meaningless telephone blockades, and then when the Germans start some action, another telephone blockade would carry little suspicion. And yet others suggest a number of plausible reasons why last night was a logical night for such a telephone stoppage. For one, Goering made a speech. The DNB report of the speech carried few references which would call for international comment, unless it would be his statement concerning the German claims to Austria for protection of the Germans in Czechoslovakia and for the annexation of Danzig. But well-informed circles intimate that Goering's speech may have contained a great deal more than was officially reported and that it was this deleted portion of the speech which Germans wanted to keep from being spare, spread. Another suggestion which is made is that the British air raid on Mannheim on Tuesday night was bigger than the Germans wanted to admit. A third suggestion is that the Anglo-Vichy relations have come to a new crisis and that the Vichy-Berlin relations will now enter into a new stage. Fourthly, some point to the German expectations of a Mexican declaration of war today, 
but this seems to be the least plausible explanation for the telephone blockade. So until events throw more light on these German telephone blockades, it's anybody's guess as to the real reasons for them. This is David Anderson returning you now to New York. Earl Godwin is ready down in Washington with his morning summary of developments in our own nation. And here he is reporting these developments from the newsroom in Washington. <laughs> Good morning, folks. You know, isn't it funny about news? Sugar doesn't make news until you cannot get it. And then when you get some more, it makes a lot more news. And more people will be interested to know they can get sugar for canning and for preserving than there are people who want the inside military dope on the true Russian objectives, which, by the way, seem to be just as puzzling to some of our experts as to anyone. The government decrees an increase in preserving sugar, one pound for every four quarts of home canning. In addition, one pound of sugar per person in a family for jams and jellies, and that's more than previously allowed. And the most recent crackdown on rubber affects the rubber in the rubberneck wagons. Transportation boss Eastman rules that there will be no more rubberneck or sightseeing buses nor chartered buses except for school children or war workers and other war essentials. Here in Washington, the rubberneck wagon trade is a tremendous one, as you could guess, and the discarding of this activity will save thousands of miles of tires here and all over the country, some expert says, a hundred thousand tons of rubber will fail to be worn off on rubberneck wagons as a result of Joe Eastman's order. At least that's what they tell me. Gasoline ration card owners who followed the wrong lead and started berating Congress for privileged ex-gas cards should realize that Congress is their friend and has balked at the complete acceptance of the ration idea and is solidly at work on getting more gas and oil from where it is to where it is needed. And it's all a simple matter of transportation. That pipeline which should have been laid was stopped in Georgia, say the President's, President Roosevelt's friends, and was stopped by the conduct of government, Governor Talmadge, who was no help to the federal government or to the administration. When the President asked the governor to help get that line through Georgia, where it was blocked by some idea of opposition, the president sent a long wire to the governor, who, two days later, handed it to the legislation, legislature without comment, and nothing happened. And true or false, that's the story here. The oil-producing Southwest is getting up steam for a protest against nationwide gas rationing because they've got so much they don't know what to do with it. Rationing officials are working toward a nationwide crackdown on gas and oil use, however, but they'll have Congress right on their necks. John Rankin, the veteran Mississippi Democrat, says if they ration gas in Mississippi and Texas, they might as well ration corn in Iowa or coal in Pennsylvania. John M. Fort, or Fout of Fort Worth, Texas, told a congressional committee the shortage can be broken easily with the proper pipeline. Independent oilmen of Texas send word here they could flood the East with oil and gas if allowed to. But those who have the rationing in hand here lay back on rubber. They say this gas rationing is more important to conserve tires than it is to conserve gas. Oil men are alarmed because rationing has already brought overproduction problems to the oil fields. No gas here and too much there, and the little ration card may become a leader in nationwide politics, and that's all from Washington at this time. Now, with Mr. Godwin's report from our nation's capital, we'll conclude this morning's roundup of the news. Other reporters heard were Martin Nagransky in Australia, John McVean in London, 
then David Anderson in Stockholm. And for the latest news, we suggest that you keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.